the biggest mistake people make when they invest in commercial real estate is they do not plan on all that renovation capital. To get it cash flowing faster, you really need to get it renovated and get those rents up and get the new tenants in. And you cannot do it out of cash flow. It has to be set aside ahead of time. Welcome to another episode of the Upflip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Freeman. And today we'll be discussing how to start a commercial real estate investing business with Emma Powell. Emma started HCG to have more time with her family without reducing her income. Now she makes over 25K a month partnering with other investors to find properties that create high residual income across the country. She's going to share the strategy she used to start investing in multifamily commercial real estate properties, how to find good business partners, and how she streamlines the businesses to create high earnings with fewer hours. Emma, to get things started, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to talk about this and just spread the word that this is a great business opportunity for most people. Let's start with your story. How and why did you get into commercial real estate investing? It just goes back to when I was first relocating to Utah about four years ago. My husband had gotten laid off in the tech industry and I didn't feel like I had done a sufficiently good job to prepare for that. So when we relocated, I didn't want to start my business over again. I was wedding and real estate photographer. And so I just went back to those old roots of looking for what could earn the highest income with the least amount of time. And I knew from photography that commercial photography was the highest margin. And I really wanted to start a real estate business, rentals, something a little bit more passive than the hustle and grind. And I knew that commercial real estate, just like commercial anything, was going to have a higher margin. So that's how I settled on that. And then as you got kind of started, what were those initial startup expenses? And were those typical expenses for a real estate investing company? I think that there are so many ways to invest in real estate that it's hard to say what the startup cost should be. And there's so much talk about using other people's money. It is possible to start this type of a business with zero money up front. I think it's dangerous not to have any sort of emergency fund. So our startup costs were the proceeds from the house that we sold in Texas. I had done a huge remodel on that, like a big live-in flip, if you will. And we lived in that for several years. And so once we pulled out the cash that we had put into it from the renovations, and also just a natural appreciation of living in it for a few years in a great area in Austin, uh, we were able to pull off some of that to put a down payment on our personal home here in Salt Lake City. And then I took the rest of that to go and start my rental business, I think that I had about 250 uh, set aside. And I would say about 200 is a good idea. And like I said, it doesn't have to be your money, but you should be working with partners to be able to set aside about that much when we can talk about where that would go and, and what that would be. But to have at least that much set aside, either your own cash or some partners that are going to be willing to work with you. Yeah, I would love to kind of talk about where where some of that initial startup money is going. What what are the types of expenses that people should be planning for? Well, I jumped straight into looking for commercial properties, but like anything, sometimes you find other things along the way that I took advantage of. So I think I spent roughly half of that on down payments for some smaller rentals, just in a landlording business. I had two single families, a duplex, a triplex, just things that came along out of my network. People will reach out to you once they figure out that you are doing this and ask for help with some problems that they're having with their houses. It's being foreclosed on, there's a layoff, uh, things like that, just out of your out of your normal network. I spent a lot of time putting on social media that I was looking for real estate opportunities and this was my new business. Um, and then also just networking with local real estate investors. I found a few good deals from people who were house flippers, but if they have too many houses to flip, they'll wholesale some of those contracts to other investors. And so I picked up some of those and turned them into small rentals. So that took about half of that startup. And then the other half of it, I was able to 
set aside to put down for earnest money on commercial projects. When I found those, because I had spent so much on these smaller rentals, I really needed to partner up for my first one. I was hoping that we could do the first one on our own, but I ran into two problems. One, I had never done it before. And so the bank wouldn't give me a loan and they were asking me to get a partner who had experience. I didn't even have a single rental, much less running a little apartment complex. And so I realized I was going to need to partner up for the loan. But also when I had spent some cash on these smaller rentals, I knew I was going to have to partner up for the down payments as well. And then what about once you get past that sort of initial startup phase, what are the ongoing overhead expenses in sort of what a a typical month or a quarter, what that might break down? Well, a good rule of thumb is that about 50% of the revenue generated is going to go right back out the door in expenses. And so that would be regular monthly expenses, which are easy to calculate, typically property taxes, utilities, especially if it's a multifamily, a single family will pay their own utilities, but a multifamily that doesn't have separate meters uh, will be paying some of those expenses. And then on top of that 50% is the mortgage. So we typically say 50% would be going to to expenses, both monthly and long-term. Those are capital expenditures that you might need to put out once a year, twice a year. You have a water heater go out, you have a roof need replaced. It's just a normal wear and tear on the property. And that's where the depreciation and the taxes comes in. So yes, you do get great tax benefits, but you do have to have the cash up front to be able to replace some of these things as they go out. You also mentioned um, one that you think it's dangerous, but that it is possible for someone with no money to get started. Uh, What steps might they need to take to, to do that? There's a lot of education that goes with it. You're not going to be able to convince people to put their money into your investing if you really have no idea what you're doing. And so there are two ways uh, around that. One, I would say partner up with another experienced investor who is like the point that I'm at right now. I'm wanting to take a more passive role and be more hands-off and let my money do the work instead of me doing the work. So finding somebody like me who's done this a little bit, who's interested in mentoring, has that teaching personality and would be interested in working with someone who's a hard worker would be one way to go about it. Another would be to reach out to your existing network, friends and family, and just finding out who has a large amount of capital that they want to put in. I would say you can put up to about four people into an investment before the Securities and Exchange Commission starts looking at the transaction for compliance and regulations. So if that was to happen, then you would want to spend some time educating yourself so that you can be somewhat educated on how these deals run. Because otherwise, you're basically asking people to give you money to do something that you've never done before and you don't know much about. So finding some sort of a mentor and also finding a place where you can run the numbers on your deals. I think if you're trying to get people to invest with you or to place their capital with you, you have to be able to show that the deal you're asking them to invest in is sound. And there are a lot of resources online to run numbers on these deals. I would say for a single family or small multifamily, biggerpockets.com has a great calculator and for the larger commercial, my favorite is adventures and commercial real estate.com or adventures in CREI.com. I want to talk a little bit about the the revenue side of the equation. So, you know, some of those monthly expenses, pretty, fairly easy to calculate. Uh, I would presume fairly regular as well, except for, you know, you're not probably not replacing a roof every month. But how regular is the revenue in this and and how do you plan for those that revenue? Well, just like if you're doing a flip or a small rental, you're not going to be making any money until there are tenants in there and their rents being collected. So for a flip, it's going to be vacant for four, five, six months, and you're not making any money at all. And so then you have one large paycheck at the end when you sell the house. Now, if you're going to be renovating to a rental, it might be vacant for two, three months while you're getting the place ready to get a renter in there. Usually we're buying distressed properties that 
needs some construction work because buying something just off the market with a realtor is almost never going to cash flow. So we just don't really look for deals from those sources. So having a little bit of construction management experience is always helpful or having someone on your team who does understand that. So with a larger commercial project, we are again buying a distressed property that's going to need a lot of renovations. And so it's not going to cash flow sometimes for the first year to 18 months. And so there's a lot of money going in and no money coming out, just like with a flipper rental, but you're going to multiply that timeline by the number of units that you have. Now, that's not to say that it's going to be completely vacant when you are doing your renovations. It's one of the reasons I like multifamily and commercial is because you are still bringing in revenue during those renovations. But is it a net gain? Sometimes it is, but you're still going to have to have a lot of the construction money set aside because even though that's not considered an operating expense, it is money that's going in. The biggest mistake people make when they invest in commercial real estate is they do not plan on all that renovation capital. They look at, say, maybe this place is grossing $30,000 a month and they're going to spend half of that on expenses and the other half, $15,000 a month, is going to go to renovation projects. $15,000 a month sounds like a lot of money, but it doesn't go very far when you're having to do major projects like plumbing upgrades, electrical upgrades, a new roof, if there are any foundation issues, each unit is going to take between five and $10,000 to renovate. And so if you only have $15,000 a month to work with, you are not going to be able to do any of those large CapEx projects. And you're only going to be able to do one unit at a time, which is going to slow things down considerably. To get it cash flowing faster, you really need to get it renovated and get those rents up and get the new tenants in. And you cannot do it out of cash flow. It has to be set aside ahead of time. So with that kind of idea of such high upfront capital expenditures, what's the best way to scale a real estate investment firm? Well, this is where the SEC comes into it because you're going to have to be pretty good at raising capital. Now, raising capital is something that you're going to face in any business that you want to scale. And the minute that you start collecting capital from what amounts to limited partners who are putting their money in, but they're not doing any of the work is where the SEC gets involved. And my securities attorney made a joke one time that about 95% of business owners are raising capital capital illegally, but it goes down to only about 90% of real estate investors. We tend to be a little bit more involved and, and aware of what the SEC requirements are for raising capital, but typically not not much. And so for people who are doing these large-scale syndications, which is basically putting together a pool of investors in order to go do a project, we need to be really on top of that because the SEC does require that we either are registering our offering, which is what a public company would be doing, and it's just not cost-effective for smaller businesses, or there are several exemptions from registration that we can look into. So we find some of those exemptions that will keep us from having to register, and then we assiduously follow the rules of those exemptions. Otherwise, we can get ourselves into pretty deep trouble. So that's the way that you scale is by putting together collections of investors and becoming a capital raiser in addition to an operator. And what are the advantages of commercial residential real estate over other types of investment? And why did you make that your focus? The scalability of it and the economies of scale are probably the largest advantage to it. Also, I like having a single project with many doors underneath the same roof because it allows me to really focus my management in. I think that the economies of scale come not just from having more doors in one place, but you're going to be having a continuity of units. And so if there's something that's broken or something that needs fixed, your maintenance person has seen this over and over again because the units are fairly similar across the entire property. So there's going to be less time of them wasting looking at what What's wrong, going to the hardware store, coming back, saying, oh, I got the wrong part going back. So that does cost a lot of money. If you're going to have a large single family rental portfolio, it's much more efficient to have 
a small or medium-sized commercial portfolio just to get those economies of scale. You're also going to be charging a lot less money or that your manager, your property manager is going to be charging a lot less money per unit to manage that. I think typical single family, small residential is going to be somewhere in the 10% of revenue per month that the manager is going to charge, but it goes all the way down to five to 7% for medium-sized commercial. And I've seen it as low as three for some of our large commercial properties. So with all that in mind, where is the best spot for someone who might be new to the industry looking to break in to get started? Well, there are several avenues that people can get started. I find them to be somewhat limited. So we actually started a free investing club for people to get into commercial real estate because I found that the existing options were cost prohibitive or time prohibitive. And so I'll I'll explain what I mean by that. One of the best ways is to get into some sort of a network mastermind or educational group where there are people doing these kinds of deals, can teach you what to look for, how to run the numbers, how to estimate the costs on renovations, finding good contractors, all that that goes into it. Usually those are pretty expensive. I would say in the tens of thousands of dollars or several thousand dollars a month. There are some out there that are much less expensive. Like I said, mine is free. And there are a couple of reasons that that we don't charge for it. And uh, mostly it has to do with the SEC. But You have some local real estate clubs, the National RIA organization in your area. It's pretty affordable, maybe $100, $150 a year. And while most of the people in there are going to be wholesaling and renting out single family homes, you will quickly find out who's doing the commercial scale projects. And you just know who they are. You network with them, try and give them some value and help out and and get an inside look at their business. And then um, because it can be expensive or it can be time consuming or not that effective to be trying to find some sort of a mentor, education podcast like this, which is like I said, the reason I started the club is because I was finding a lot of frustration from people trying to break into this. It's like going from zero to 100 miles an hour in one deal. There's just a huge number of hurdles that you need to get over from finding the deal, vetting the deal, raising the money for the deals, SEC compliance, all of these can be massive. Most people spend one to two years looking for their first commercial deal. And at that point, they're usually pretty frustrated. So they'll come into my club and every week we investigate, we look into a deal that other operators are are doing. So it's somewhat passive and we will pool our money and go invest in that deal together. And in exchange for that pool, we want some oversight into the deal so we can protect our investment. And it has the side benefit of everybody in the deal is learning how to do a deal by actually doing one instead of just listening to a bunch of podcasts or reading a bunch of books. What are the must-have skills for someone to succeed in real estate investing? Number one skill is networking, without a doubt. Those are going to be the people who are going to be teaching you, like how to run numbers. Those are going to be the people who are bringing you deals, like brokers or even if you know an owner directly, which is pretty common in the smaller multifamily or smaller commercial space. But being able to network, the biggest impact is being able to raise the capital for the deal. So if you have a large deal and you need to maybe say a million dollar down payment, where are you going to get that from? It's going to come from usually a pool of investors. So having a large pool of people who are interested in investing in your deals, whether they want to be a limited partner and have no management, or they'd like to be a co-general partner and help to manage the deal with you, it requires a vast network. And the bigger the deal, the more people you need in your network. Outside of joining those masterminds or investment clubs, do you have any other tips on on building that, that network? There are a lot 
of conferences and I find them to be extremely effective if you can develop good follow-up skills. I think that's where most business owners, no matter what type of business they're running, fall down. It's not having a good system to keep the people organized. And so going to a conference, collecting business cards, and this could be a local meetup or it could be a national conference where people are flying in and attending in a hotel ballroom type of situation. Um, But you really need to be organized and follow up by putting those business cards into some sort of customer relationship management software and then having some sort of marketing campaign that you're going to drip out to them over the ensuing months, especially if they don't know anything about real estate or if they don't know anything about commercial real estate. You're going to want to be putting out a lot of education and nurturing that network. So finding it is attending a lot of I find the live events to be more effective than the online events, unless the online event is specifically geared towards networking. And there there are a few of those that I like where we just get into breakout rooms and talk. I tend those to find those to be very operator heavy, like other people doing the same things you are. And so to get uh, partners, that's a great place. But to get limited partners, um, you're going to want to stick with your professional organizations. And most people will have a niche, like if they're in the medical field, they will appeal to other medical people. If they're a former engineer, now they're a full-time investor, a lot of their engineering contacts from their previous job, and that will be most of their network. So finding a pool of limited partners as well as a pool of potential general partners would be really helpful to split time between those two things. And people need more limited partners by far. That's that's a much more scarce asset in a business. And so really focusing on that by getting into these professional organizations is where most people find the money to fund their deals. You, you made mention of getting business cards into a CRM. So that, that leads me to want to ask about what tools and software you're using to manage workflow. What processes do you have in place? All that. Well, it's important to be able to start with some of the simple and free tools and then from there scale up to something that's a little bit more professional. So I personally just started obviously with a spreadsheet and Google tools, or if you're using um, Microsoft OneDrive and just keeping everything in a spreadsheet. And then when you find some sort of email service provider or a CRM, you can then bulk upload that spreadsheet into that program. So a lot of people start out with MailChimp, it's free, but it gets expensive really fast once you get over a certain number of contacts. Um, I see people most commonly at that point moving over to active campaign, which for less than 500 contacts, I think is less than $10 a month. And so um, it's very robust. It's, it's very technical. I do also know a lot of a lot of operators who are using a CRM like HubSpot would probably be the most common um, of the free and low cost ones. So I use um, a syndication platform that's specifically built to have uh, SEC compliance in the way that we raise capital and it has some CRM capabilities. So I'm making pretty heavy usage of that. I'm also transitioning over to active campaign right now. And what about on the financial side? What tools are you using to track finances and plan for the future? Well, if you're a completely passive investor, limited partner, which is what my retirement goal is, that's what I'm working towards. Let's just get to the point where I put my money into deals and and don't do any operations. And if I do any capital raising, it would be on a very small scale, just continuing to manage my club. You can just collect the K-1s from that business and that would be in your personal name. And you just give those to your accountant at the end of the year to do your taxes. Now, the more involved you get, obviously, the more robust accounting you're going to need. So the property manager will do property expenses for you, I have some property managers that will allow me to submit receipts from expenses that we incur outside the business and they'll include that in their accounting. It just depends on the relationship that you have with that property manager. And I would say QuickBooks or QuickBooks Online is the tool of choice for my accountants to prepare my taxes. And 
either you can hire a bookkeeper. Um, I would recommend doing it yourself for a little while just to make sure that you understand the ins and outs of the businesses or at least doing it with the help of a bookkeeper. I hired my accountant's bookkeeper and I met with her quarterly for about a year to get my books all in order. And then I did it myself for about two years. And then I'm looking at turning it over to a bookkeeper now. And we'll just stay in QuickBooks until, like I said, we get to the point where we can downgrade to something that's free, like maybe Wave Apps, when most of my business is, is K1s. And then, like I said, at the point that it's all K1s, um, there wouldn't be any accounting outside of whatever you use for your personal finances. When you first got High Rise Group started, how long did it take to establish your presence in the industry? And what did you do to kind of build that brand awareness? It's definitely a slow process, but I think the best thing you can do to build brand awareness is to do something cool that people want to emulate, that people want to say, how did you do that? And so for me, the two big things that really jump started, you start out on social media, you start out building an email list and communicating with the people on that list, but it can feel like it's going painfully slow. And so I quickly scaled up to a couple of commercial projects that gave me some credibility. First of all, that first big deal is a massive credibility booster. And our second large deal, it was a new construction. It was a high rise in downtown Salt Lake City. And that was a land entitlement project. It's basically you're taking an old warehouse and you're getting approval from the city and architectural plans built. Uh, our plan was to build that, uh, partner up with a with a large general contractor, but we ended up just selling it with those entitlements in place. And so that was a massive project that got me a lot of credibility on my social media when I attend conferences, things like that. People say, what are you working on? And when that's the project, it gets people's attention. How did you raise money for it? How did you find it? All of those questions. And once I got those those couple of first big projects under my belt, I was able to start doing podcasts like this to just get the word out that this is an option for people who want to put their cash in to be limited partners, but it's also an option for just normal people to go out and start this kind of a business. So podcast interviews, my website, social media, and attending um, live and online events were how I built that and doing some cool projects or what gave me the credibility that I wasn't just another person hanging out at a conference who had never really done much of anything. Now that you you know are, are significantly established, what kind of ongoing brand building are you doing? I'm building my website to increase the size um, at the top of the funnel to have more incoming traffic. Um, when you are raising capital from limited partners, like I said, the SEC has a significant set of regulations that we need to follow. So building relationships with people who are interested in investing in projects is essential or we're not even allowed to show them deals or email deals. We can't advertise these deals on social media, depending on which exemption we're using. And so having that funnel expanded through the website and through social media is is really the ongoing and, it's, and that's going to be constant through the life of the business. So if you if you are unable to advertise deals, what are you doing to get people into that top of funnel? I tried to choose a different exemption where we can advertise, but those are limited to accredited investors only. And those are investors who have a net worth of at least a million dollars, not including their personal home or two to $300,000 annual income. And so when we can talk to accredited investors on social media and advertising all we want, and so if we get a deal that we can advertise under that exemption, then that gives us a lot of marketing materials. And we make sure that we don't do anything called conditioning the market saying, hey, this is for accredited and investors. But if you want to invest in my private one, reach out to me. We're not allowed to say those kinds of things, but it does help to put us on the map. And then as we're meeting people one by one, it's super old school because of that. It's a way that you have to just build your network one person at a time, and then they opt in so that you can send them those private deals through an email system or a very private Facebook group where they can look at deals together. Otherwise, it is very difficult and it is a hamstring. And the reason that the SEC does that, they're going to hamstring you one way or the other. You can choose a credit 
accredited investors only, or if you want to take in non-accredited investors, it has to be private with no advertising. So if someone is a, a non-accredited investor who might want to become a limited partner in some of these some of these deals, one, how much capital would they need to be prepared to part with? And, and how would they find you or, you know, how would they find these opportunities? I would get on LinkedIn and Facebook and especially LinkedIn and search for people who have something like multifamily syndicator or commercial real estate investing, something like that in their taglines or in their bios and just start reaching out to them one by one. Hi, my name is such and such. I have X amount of dollars I'd like to invest. I am not accredited. So I can only look at that exemption is called a 506B exemption. And that's the only one that is not registered that non-accredited or an accredited investors are allowed to participate in. And so it's your job to reach out and find those operators and build those relationships. And the relationship is really could be a phone call, filling out a survey, this type of thing where they know your general business knowledge, they know what your income is, they know your net worth, things like that. Just make sure you give them some relevant financial information. And the way that you can find them is by attending your local real estate clubs and occasionally go to a conference because if you're a limited partner who shows up at a conference, everybody wants to talk to you. And so you're going to get a huge list of operators that you can learn to work with. Um, the other way is watching for their publicly advertised deals, which is the 506C exemption, and just reaching out to them and saying, say, I see you have a deal here for accredited investors only. I'm not accredited. Can you please add me to your list to see the 506B deals? So then looking back to when you when you first got started, what what mistakes did you make? And what what would you do differently if you could go back and do it all again? I don't often look at mistakes as how I would change things if I could go back and do it again, because we learn so much from our experiences that even the mistakes, and especially the mistakes, are a huge educational opportunity. And so would I go back and do anything differently? Maybe earlier on, instead of when I was a photographer, I would have been using that money to buy rental houses and working for money, investing that money, and then the cash flow or the living expenses would be coming off of what the investment throws off. So that's the big thing that I would do differently in the very, very early days before I even started my business. But if you want to look at mistakes as maybe losses, either a loss of of money or a loss of someone in your network, which is just as dangerous as losing money, burning burning someone, and they don't want to do business with you anymore. And even worse, they might tell other people not to do business with you anymore. Some of the big mistakes I made were partnering up with people who I was expecting to put money into a deal if the deal ran into trouble, but they didn't have any money. And so going into a deal with somebody who cannot help bail it out with some sort of a capital call uh, was a big mistake of mine. I should have been able to support that business either by myself if that partner was valuable enough to keep them in the deal, even though they had no capital. Um, or I should have brought in another partner so that we could team up if we just ran into trouble. So there are several ways that has has gotten me. And so I've just learned if the person doesn't have any cash, they either need to get some sort of a partner or some way to get some cash, or just don't put them in a position where they're going to be responsible for any of the capital outlay and just lower their equity percentage accordingly. Now today, what's your biggest challenge as a business owner? What What steps are you taking to overcome it? The biggest frustration I have right now is getting that first level of passive income coming in on a more regular schedule. And before the interview, we talked about how this has some pretty irregular income. You're going to be getting distributions off of your properties and you're going to be maybe selling some or refinancing some. And those are irregular chunks of money coming in. And so to have it smoothed out where we're getting involved in putting our cash into deals and getting distributions in more of a monthly or quarterly basis is a big frustration right now because you have to take the equity that you have in properties, do a return on equity analysis. Should I keep it, refinance it, 
sell it, and then repositioning that equity into other projects that might cash flow on a more regular basis. And usually large projects, like I said, they don't cash flow right away. So you're waiting six, maybe nine months for your first distribution. And so, which is fine if you have other sources of income coming in from a job. But when you're starting your very first investments and your portfolio is still young, it takes a couple of years to really get a good snowball effect coming where you're refinancing or selling one to two deals a year and enjoying those big chunks of cash. And so getting level one in place, I call it the first base goal, is where we have enough passive income to equal what we're earning right now actively. And because we're so close to that goal, I find myself getting very impatient and very frustrated waiting for that to finally start on the snowball down the hill type of type of action. Is there a leadership style or approach that works best in the real estate investing industry? I think that the people who tend to be most successful are actually the ones who are more of a high level CEO type and they're less down in the details. It's very frustrating for people like me to not feel like we have a great handle on the details. But at the same time, if we did, we wouldn't be able to do as many deals. It's kind of getting sucked into the DIY syndrome where you're going to do everything yourself and it doesn't give you time to take a step back and evaluate the business and see how to grow the business. And so there has to be a certain amount of being able to delegate, let go, but still aware enough that you know how to read the financial reports that you're getting out from your bookkeeper or your property manager and be able to make decisions based on those details. Um, So yes, you do start out wearing many hats and doing a lot of the details, but being able to get away from that as quickly as possible without sacrificing the knowledge that you're going to gain from those experiences is really where I find people who are the most successful because they're able to think more about how to scale and build the business and build the income and less about what handyman they're going to call to fix this toilet. And then I, I know one of your goals was to, to work part-time, make full-time income. You started talking about your retirement goals of being fully passive. How are you doing on those goals and how many hours are you averaging in a given work week? Right now, the only work that I'm really doing is just building up the club. And then I spend probably two to three hours a week on the existing deals that I already own, just making sure that the contractors and property managers are on track. So building the club is an opportunity for me to put some of my capital into more deals in a a more hands-off way, but not completely as a limited partner, because I still have something to offer with my experience to be able to help people manage, build teams, put stuff together, more like a board position than a frontline operator position. And then just seeing and believing that it's possible to be able to retire early on this type of income. Um, Not just myself, which I'm pretty much retired right now, but then the next step of retiring my husband from his W-2, which is why I feel so impatient to get this done, but because it it would allow both of us to spend more time with our family. The goal is not to run a huge business. It's not to run a huge syndication business. The goal is to figure out how to maximize the income while maximizing the free time that we have. And with that, we can spend more time with our family. And most people find that they want to start some sort of philanthropic um, effort. And so getting, getting to that point and believing that that can happen and being able to turn to the avenues that make that most possible. And I'll give another example. Instead of running a commercial deal, which blew the lid off of my income, earnings. So in steps, photographer, I blew the lid off when I became a single family, small multifamily owner. And then I blew the lid off of that income potential again, when I scaled up to commercial, blowing the lid off of that again, would be mostly in a capital raising function where I'm starting a fund. It's the same kind of thing, the SEC regulated fund, I'm raising capital, and I'm putting it into other people's deals. Again, it's a much less time for a much larger reward. If someone's just getting started, what are some tips that you might be able to offer for them to be able to tell if if a deal that they're looking at is a smart investment? 
Well, you asked the question before about how much money people could expect to put into a deal as a limited partner. And I think that being a limited partner would be a great way to just get some inside track on how these things run by actually putting some money in. Because when you have some money in something, you are motivated to keep an eye on it and you don't burn out quite as quickly as you would if you were just playing along watching it. So most of these commercial syndications, whether it's a multifamily commercial or or even a non-real estate asset are going to be between 50 and $75,000 per investment. And so I recommend that people put something into something and then just watch it. It shouldn't be the only $50,000 that you have. I would say, again, that $200,000 number seems to be about the right spot. And again, it sounds like a lot of money for most small entrepreneurs, but the people who tend to be more interested in being a limited partner in these projects are other investors who are now earning a high income or professionals who earn a high income, and especially if they're business owners and they need to offset some of that income with taxes. So just plan on with the tax savings from the depreciation that real estate gives that no other investment will give. And so that tends to be the person who has a bare 200 and they could throw $50,000 at one to maybe four deals and just get a sense for it. So beginning that way is a really great way to go. And if you find that you enjoy looking at the numbers, reading the quarterly reports, looking at deals, and you're fascinated by the monthly updates, the emails that the operator will send, then that might be a signal that this could be something that you might want to do in a little bit more of an active fashion. But if you're like me, I had to start active because I didn't have enough money to put into a deal. And so in that case, we'll just go back to what we spoke about before, where it's just getting out to events and networking and finding a deal and then finding the people who can help you run it and then finding the money to be able to finance it. What's the biggest reason you think other real estate investment companies fail? I see that it's about an 80-20 mix. 80% would be believing that you can make it happen. And we'll probably include in that the people that you need to know to make it happen. And the other 20% would be the practical knowledge that needs to happen. Like I said, running numbers, finding deals, networking with brokers, networking with property managers, just the know-how to actually do a deal like this. And so if 80% of it is lack of belief or lack of network, then that's the reason why most people fail. And you'll hear people say over and over again, I lost everything in 2008. And what comes next is really telling about why they failed. Did they get out of it, go back to a job that maybe they don't like or give up their dream? Or did they take what they learned from that really difficult period in real estate history and regroup and go out as a smarter investor and build it again, knowing that that was probably the worst real estate disaster we're going to see in our lifetimes, rather than saying, oh, this is scary. I need to get out of this. Instead, going out and building that again. And if they fail, it's really usually because they quit. To close out the show, we're going to do a section that we call our Fan Blitz questions. So these are coming from our YouTube community. If you want to go out there, find Upflip on YouTube. We'll tell you who, who our next guest is going to be on the podcast. You can throw in some questions and we'll a- ask them here on the show. So for these, just, you know, quick 30-second answer as we dive into these. Number one, what's your favorite business book? I would say Multipliers maybe closely followed or even preceded by Crucial Conversations. Um, These were written by two authors. Uh, The author of Multipliers was actually um, an intern at one point for the author of Crucial Conversations. And Crucial Conversations is about how to have candid, respectful conversations with people when things, when stakes are high, when emotions are high, and how to do it without either rolling over and being completely passive, but also not being aggressive, yelling at people, putting them on defense. Um, It's just how to have mature communications with uh, your team members. And Multipliers takes that a step farther with how to find the special genius in each person that you're working with and being able to build their strengths. Because most of us 
accidentally will diminish them by micromanaging little criticisms, helpful thoughts, and we don't even realize that we're demotivating them. And so it's, that book is about how to keep everybody uplifted, working on their strengths and giving the credit to the team instead of taking it yourself. What kind of car do you drive? I drive. <laughs> this is a great question. I drive a 2007 Toyota Sienna minivan and my husband drives a 2005 Toyota Sienna minivan. We call them our smart investor cars. Cars don't really motivate us. And so I would say that if there's something material that really motivates you, like a big house, a nice wardrobe, a big car, you should go ahead and do that. It's a, it's a huge reward when you have a success to go out and treat yourself to something that uh, will motivate you to continue to achieve success. But for for us, that would be more free time, early retirement, traveling. And so we try to spend our money there. And then you'll be frugal in the places that don't tend to motivate you as much. So we don't care that much about the status symbols of a car or a nice house. So we live in a little townhouse and drive some crappy old cars. What's the biggest risk you've ever taken? Well, it was also the one where I lost the most money. We bought a 225 unit uh, multifamily in Texas that we ended up not being able to close on. And so I lost... I think the partners collectively lost about $100,000 and I took about between sixty dollars and $70,000 of that loss. Wow. Uh, so this is more of a follow-up to the, the car question, I think. But uh, what is the most outlandish purchase you have ever made? I invested in the local rugby team because I used to play rugby in high school and I worked for the professional team in Austin the last year that we lived there. And when we moved to Utah, I was an investor and I was getting into that mindset. And I said, I'm going to invest in not only real estate, but in projects that I really believe in on the ground floor. So I, I bought one unit of uh, ownership shares in the Utah rugby team and their first game that they played when, when the league went pro, it was an away game. And I was really disappointed that as one of the junior owners, I wasn't going to be able to watch their first game. And so I just booked a trip to San Diego to go stay in a hotel by myself, go to the game by myself and wander around San Diego for a couple of days. And it was very freeing. I remember sending a, a little video to a business coach that I had hired, a sales coach, and just sh showing her around San Diego and saying, this is very out of character for me to just do something like this, to jump on a plane and go do this. But I said, this is building my investor mindset and this is building my intention to be successful so that this kind of thing is no longer unusual. One last fan blitz question here. What's one fact that changed your perspective on life? What I mentioned before, that active income should go towards investments and then lifestyle should be lived on the back of the investments. So there's always a balance there when you need to keep the lights on and you barely have enough money to pay your expenses. So that's why we lowered our expenses significantly again with the small house and the crappy cars so that we can reinvest every spare dime that comes back in and eventually give it, give it, Three to five years is what I find most people who are aggressively investing to be able to then retire on that passive income. But during that time, that transition period, keep your expenses low, invest every spare dollar, and you'll find that it happens sooner than you think it will happen. That is going to do it for this episode of the UpFlip podcast. If you want more from UpFlip, one, check out other episodes of this podcast or be here every week for new episodes in the feed. Check us out on YouTube, UpFlip on YouTube, and also check out the blog, upflip.com slash blog. Emma Powell, real estate and rugby investor. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This is a great entrepreneurial podcast and YouTube channel that I really enjoy. And it's an honor to be a guest. Well, we appreciate that. We look forward to, to catching up with you some more. Thank you. 